Hello everyone and welcome back for the second episode of Fly on the World. I'm your host today, Aaron Bennett, and it's just me for this episode. Actually, we're recording over Easter break, so while everyone else is home, I made the decision to stay at Georgetown uh, over the long weekend and to hammer through some final papers. Uh, But what came along with that decision was the fantastic opportunity to go to the German embassy and speak with the German ambassador to the United States. His name is Peter Wittig. And uh, Ambassador Wittig is one of the most fascinating people I've ever met. And I'm going to make this intro short because I know you guys all just want to listen to him. Uh, And that's totally, totally valid because the guy has so many interesting things to say about climate policy. But I just sort of want to frame uh, the climate discussion in Germany for you, uh, as well as give you a little bit of a background on Ambassador Wittig before we actually talk to him. Uh, So about climate change policy in Germany, they're known to be one of the greatest leaders on the climate change front, they have set a very ambitious goal. By 2050, they want to have cut carbon emissions by 95%. That is a crazy, 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 crazy number. Uh, something that we can't even fathom here uh, because of you know the United States uh, is one of the biggest carbon emitters in the world. Uh, so they've set up this ambitious goal, uh, and they're they're going to meet it. You know, uh, and I think what's remarkable about Germany and Ambassador Wittig will speak to this uh, is how a lot of the change isn't just at the top. It is truly at its core a grassroots effort to make their country more sustainable, to make their everyday lives more sustainable, uh, to better the world and, and perpetuate it for for our future. And I think that's very commendable about the German spirit in in trying to tackle this issue uh, at all levels of, of uh, addressing it. A little bit about Ambassador Wittig. Uh, the guy's fascinating, and he was so, so generous to invite me into the embassy and into his office to, to speak with him. It was an amazing experience. Uh, so Ambassador Peter Wittig served as German ambassador to the United States, or has served in the German ambassador to the United States since April 2014. And before this, uh, he was German ambassador to the United Nations in New York, uh, where he took part in some of those climate change negotiations uh, that led up to the discussions in Paris, uh, and has been in the Forest Service since 1982. So the guy understands what it's like to negotiate for a big European power player on the global arena. Uh, so with that, uh, enough from me. I'm not the interesting part of this show, and uh, we don't have Christian or Justin to, to bounce some humor off of. So I'll take a backseat and enjoy the interview with Ambassador Wittig. Okay, great. So we're here with Ambassador Wittig, the German ambassador to the United States. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Uh, so we just want to walk uh, through a couple things. As everyone knows, this is a podcast about climate change. And yeah. we're looking at uh, you know, how different regions, different actors are able to participate uh, in this broader discussion about how we deal with uh, this impending uh, and very serious global issue. Uh, so first, I'd just like to open with, uh, could you outline for us the German vision of global energy policy and climate change mitigation as you guys uh, foresee it? Look, um, thank you for, for your questions. Um, number one, my country uh, used to be and still is um, a leader in the international climate diplomacy. For us, climate change is one of the major global challenges that the whole planet is facing 
that's something we've got to do, we've got to fight together, and it doesn't stop at national borders. So we are committed to an international effort to um, fight climate change and to mitigate and adapt uh, to, to the changes. Now, um, Chancellor Merkel has been one of the protagonists uh, in international climate policy. She has lifted this issue very high on the uh, priority list, not only of uh, German foreign policy, but also of European foreign policy, and also as, as a world leader. She has addressed this issue in international fora, like um, uh, the United Nations and, and at many other occasions. In the meantime, uh, Germany is, after the Paris Agreement, which was a big achievement, as, as we all know, um, in 2015, we have uh, become the biggest donor um, to contribute uh, to an international fund that helps, in particular, uh, developing countries to um, adapt to climate change. So I think there we have taken um, a leading uh, position and then our leadership, Chancellor Merkel in particular, now tries to mainstream the fight against climate change into all um, the international fora. Um, for example, Germany now is for a year president of the G20. The G20 is the group of the 20 leading economies um, in the world, economic countries in the world. So uh, we will be host, Chancellor Merkel will be host of the summit of um, the G20 leaders and their climate policy uh, will also be a big item. That's fantastic, and I, and I know the world definitely appreciates Germany stepping up to the plate and, and helping solve a lot of these issues. And just to dive a little bit deeper, uh, you were talking about Chancellor Merkel, and uh, what we've read about Chancellor Merkel is that she uh, declared that Germany would shut down all 17 of its reactors, nuclear reactors, by 2020, uh, and has made a lot of aggressive emission cuts, if that's correct, uh, at least in terms of setting goals. Uh, so we'd like to congratulate you on these, these bold goals and, ach and achievements, but uh, as we know, it's a very coordinated effort to you know, tackle this problem at a global scale. So how does Germany plan to translate its domestic achievements in this area to leading in the international sphere and you know, setting that standard and expectation that other countries match your example? Mm -hmm. Well, we have set ourselves rather bold emission goals. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they are bolder than uh, those that the European Union set for himself and, and bolder than um, uh, emissions for, uh, of many other countries. We do that because I think the German uh, people are very environmental and ecologically minded. It is not <laughs> just a cause for, let's say, the Green Party or you know the progressive segment of the society, but it's deeply rooted in into the political mainstream. So, um, a clean energy. Uh, you mentioned shutting down the nuclear uh, power plants. That is a majority um, decision of the people. Um, energy efficiency, um, use of renewable. Uh, energy sources, that's also uh, very much a mainstream thing. So what we are aspire to, um, num number one, uh, bet our money, if I, if I can say so, uh, on renewables, um, solar and, and wind in particular, and we have this rather ambitious goal in 2050 
to feed all our electricity uh, from renewables. Uh, then, since we don't have um, a lot of oil and gas, we want to diversify, and especially, you know, import gas, not only from Russia, but also from other countries like Norway or uh, Algeria. Gas is also a very clean energy that helps us to cut emissions. And at the same time, we want to uh, bring down the emissions through coal. Um, that's a tall order because the coal industry is an important um, sector in our country as well. Mm -hmm. And um, I think uh, energy diversification in general is the order of the day for us, uh, a country that is less blessed or with natural resources than, than the U.S. happily <laughs> is. So, um, in a nutshell, um, yes, oh, we cut down nuclear um, and we um, promote uh, also through tax breaks um, for individual uh, consumers, um, we, um, we promote uh, f clean energy and we promote renewables. And, and I think there we, we have been succeeding uh, quite a bit, including creating a lot of new jobs in the industry of uh, renewable energy. I think that's fascinating. And I want to dive a little bit deeper into something you just said about how it's just socially, culturally, um, the mainstream mm. to, to be on board with fighting climate change and being more responsible and sustainable with your energy policies. Uh, but I imagine it wasn't always that way. I imagine there's, there's some sort of shift took place. So uh, as a country, you know, in the United States who was still struggling to get uh, fully on board culturally and, and making it, uh, you know, just sort of the mainstream to actively fight against climate change, how did that shift go, how did that shift sort of take place? You know, what sort of warning side should we be looking for in American society uh, for that sort of alteration? You're right. I mean, it's a shift uh, in the mentality and it doesn't come overnight. It doesn't happen with a big, big bang. Mm. And in a way, it starts in our personal lives. I mean, the first thing is we have to become aware that climate change um, is a threat uh, to all of us, to our personal lives, to um, uh, the sustainability of our planet uh, in the medium and long term. You know, our kids um, will suffer if we are not living in a in a responsible way. And the second step is, you know, to lead our personal lives in a way that is uh, in line with sustainability, you know, uh, protect our en environment, use less water, um, live in an energy efficient way, protect also biodiversity. Uh, that's also an important aspect. So I think in our daily life, recycle, for mm. instance, you know, recycle waste. In our daily life, we can do a lot to live a responsible, sustainable life. And then uh, beyond our personal life, I, th I think um, what, what, what the next step is, encourage those forces in the society that are in favor of the protection of the environment, that are um, in favor of uh, protecting our climate, and that are leaders in in environmental policy on the global scale. And, and, and that third element, namely the, the political um, uh, will and, and the awareness of the society, uh, that grows hopefully over time. And it did in my country and, and I see it happening in a way worldwide.
Well, that's really encouraging. And hopefully, you know, we're, we're able to follow that example uh, around the world. And so we talked a little bit about uh, how Germany itself uh, is leading at a national level. Uh, you're an ambassador. So, you know, we have to sort of delve into the broader international sphere for these sort of discussions. Uh, so I was wondering if you could tell us about the context for uh, both Paris and Kyoto and all these um, negotiations that have gone on uh, and how it's sort of changing, especially with, uh, you know, the development of new uh, nationalist, more isolationist sentiments in some developing nations and developed nations. Uh, how do you go about, you know, from your experience, crafting a deal that sort of makes everyone happy and everyone can get, in, get on mm. board with? Well, again here, uh, this is a, a slow process to bring countries that are very diverse in their level of development uh, together. You know, I served as ambassador of Germany to the United Nations in New York uh, for almost five years, and I was involved in 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 some of the climate um, discussions and the climate diplomacy uh, that sort of accumulated in in this um, success of the Paris Agreement. And for the first time in in the history of the international climate diplomacy, we have now an almost universal agreement. Uh, I think 175 or some more signed the Paris Agreement, wow. and that's a first. You know, you you usually had an avant-garde. For instance, the one of the first agreements was called the Kyoto Agreement. There are only a couple of industrial countries participated, and right. others stood apart. The U.S. at the time didn't subscribe to it, um, but now Paris um, and in the U.S. By the way, was a leader. Uh, in, in that came together and it now has become a universal agreement uh, with obligations and commitments by all the countries that participated. And what is also new that not only the highly industrialized country where the awareness is, is, is particularly high, uh, but also the developing countries now are on board. And I include in, in that countries like India or even um, you know, although it's not really a developing country anymore, um, China, they, they are part of it. And why? Because the U.S. Uh, stepped forward, um, was in a way a model of a great emitting country and signed Paris. So that took away the pretext for other countries not to join mm. because they couldn't say, well, the big emitter America is not joining, therefore we're also not joining. By joining the Paris Agreement, the U.S. set an example, convinced China, which was a great achievement, um, and, and, and it was done in bilateral negotiations between Washington and Beijing. So there was an alliance of the great admitters, and that created a kind of cascade effect, others joined in. Therefore, it has become a global, almost universal agreement, and, and that is the, the big you know, historic achievement of, of the Paris Agreement, and I just hope that um, America sort of um, sticks with it in the future. Certainly. So you mentioned you were you're in the room in New York uh, when some of these talks were going on. So I, I just want you to walk us a little bit through that process. You know, everyone walks in uh, into this big room and, and you, your negotiations are about to start. What's what's step one? Who do you go to first? How do those alliances form? Well, you know, the interesting thing is as a as a country, as a single country, you can't achieve anything. You have to form coalitions. You have to look for allies. And what I experienced um, in, in, in New York, when 
when I was part of those um, negotiations, um, it was important to have two key allies. Um, those countries that suffer most from climate change. And it's basically two set of countries. One, um, the small island states right. that suffer from the rather dramatic uh, rise of the sea levels. And those are about 40 states that call themselves small island and developing states, SIDS. Hmm. There are about 40 countries. And the second group is basically Africa. Africa has 54 countries and they suffer, some suffer also from uh, rise of sea levels, but others suffer from droughts, um, from desertification, uh, from um, lack of water resources, etc. So the Africans and those small island states were a powerful um, lobby, if you will, of almost already 100 countries. So we got them uh, enlisted as partners. And if you have 100 countries, although they were not the most powerful mm -hmm. countries in the world, uh, that already counts. And, and, and so the, the secret was form alliances and, and, and then, of course, um, you know, do deals in a way, you know, be able to compromise, but never lose sight of your, of your main goal. And in this case, it was conclude a meaningful uh, climate change uh, agreement. That makes a lot of sense. And I have to say, I do model United Nations and uh, as do some of my roommates. So yeah. we're very familiar with that block formation. And, yeah, and, uh, yeah. It, it's a complicated game and everything takes time. There's never, you know, things never happen in a big bang. It's usually a, a very cumbersome process, but that's part and parcel of everything that you do uh, on a global level. Um, and you know the, the international community, uh, uh, well, that's what they call it, is usually a tanker and not a speedboat. Mm. But that's the way it is. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, so I just want to move on a bit and talk a little bit about energy security, uh, mm -hmm. because obviously this plays a big role into uh, decision making when you're deciding, you know, what are your emissions goals? Uh, what countries are you going to partner with? Uh, so I'd just like to ask a little bit about Germany and how they sort of grapple with that issue, um, knowing that you guys aren't 100% self-sufficient. You mm -hmm. get a little bit of natural gas from Russia and, and a lot of other places. So uh, how does this sort of factor in when you're working with these countries in the international arena? Yes, um, I mean, let me first of all say, uh, yes, unfortunately, uh, we, we are not energy um, sufficient. We, we are- Neither are we, so. Well, almost. Um, the US you know, is blessed uh, by um, geography and by wealth of uh, natural resources. Um, the US uh, is, a, is a net exporter of gas, mm. and you bec can become a net exporter of oil. You are, in a way. Um, energy uh, sufficient, and that's a great, um, you know, blessing, uh, because you're less dependent on, on, uh, on imports, uh, hence on other countries like you know in the Middle East, sure. where the U.S. used to be much more dependent upon. Now, but in our case, um, uh, we are dependent on on imports, and as I said before, although we want to increase our um, sources for renewable energy, we still will have to import gas um, and, and, and oil. Now, we have a traditional um, relationship with Russia, 
who's the, one of the biggest um, exporters of gas, and there are huge pipelines through the European continent that uh, are supplying us. Um, after the um, annexation of the Crimea and the Ukraine uh, crisis and uh, conflicts, in, in particular in eastern Ukraine, our relations uh, to Russia politically soured, and um, we went through a difficult phase, and we are still not back to normal. Uh, we are engaging now in, um, in a multifaceted uh, diplomacy to resolve issues with Russia. Um, and we are mindful that we don't want to be dependent on the supply of Russian gas. So we have diversified. On the other hand, the Russians, even at the height of the Cold War, never used their gas supplies to, um, you know, um, extract a political price. They, um, they were a reliable supplier, and so sure. far it has worked well. But we are mindful um, that we um, di have to diversify, and we're doing that um, with gas and, and with other sources of energies. You know, it's naturally a more difficult position um, as opposed to a country like yours, um, which is um, energy sufficient, makes things more complicated. Uh, but also it creates an additional incentive to be energy efficient. Uh, and I, I, you know, venture to say that in my country, the awareness that we need to save energy, then we want to drive gas guzzlers, that, that we, we want to be um, um, mindful of our consumption of energy, that is, um, a very, um, you know, common mindset. And so the lack of energy resources, the lack of natural resources creates a healthy uh, awareness that that is scarce. Great. Well, thanks so much for that. And, and one final question. This is something that we like to ask all of our guests uh, because, you know, as you know, we're catering to a student audience for the mm -hmm. most part, the people who are listening to the pod. So the final question is, what advice do you have for students who are passionate about climate and security-related issues, and how can they get involved while they're still in school in you know, tackling some of these big global problems? Well, again, number one, it starts with your own life. You know, lead a personal life that is in accordance with energy and environmental um, sustainability. I think that that's, you know, it, it, it starts even, you know, um, in, when you start your day, do, 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 do you use a, a lot of energy? Do you um, spoil energy? Do you spoil food or things like that? Um, but then, of course, there are wonderful organizations that you can join, either to protect um, biodiversity, which I think is is a hugely important aspect of our life in in and with nature. You know, that great organization like the World Wildlife Fund and, mm -hmm. you know, many other NGOs that are doing great, great job. Um, and, and, and then I, I think on a, on a political level, there, there are also grassroots organizations that are in the business of promoting awareness, um, of the nefarious effects of climate change, and and I think uh, you know there there are wonderful opportunities for students to be active on campus or off campus. Um, you know, maybe the podcast that you're doing <laughs> right now with me is 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 a little part of you know having a conversation about those issues, 
And um, I know, especially in Georgetown, there's so many enthusiastic students, knowledgeable and engaged and want to do a, a difference, want to have a difference, make a difference in life and also with the environment. And, and so I'm hopeful, you're so resourceful and so committed. I'm hopeful that, you know, uh, bottom up, uh, I think that's the approach uh, that, that more and more people become aware that um, our planet uh, needs protection and needs the awareness of all of us. Very well said. And I just want to say one more thank you. Uh, for those of you guys uh, who might not know, because this is just an audio podcast, uh, they brought me out here to the German Embassy. And I have to say, this is an absolutely beautiful facility. And I really appreciate you taking the time to invite me out here and to talk with me today. It was such a pleasure. Thank Great. you. Thank, thank you. you, everyone. That was Ambassador Whitting. Well, thanks so much for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Uh, Ambassador Wittig, again, so generous, so thank you so much. And to the German Embassy as a whole, thanks for making this process so, so easy. Uh, and another quick shout-out to the Caravel, who made this all possible. They were able to bring in uh, Ambassador Wittig to an event on April 5th uh, in Gaston Hall and so generously offered to set us up with him to interview him for the podcast. So thank you so much, the Caravel. We really appreciate your partnership uh, in Fly in the World. And tune in uh, next week, next Wednesday, for another great climate change episode. Uh, we'll keep the guest secret for now, but you guys are going to like that episode just as much as you love the first two. Uh, that being said, check out Fly on the Trail. A couple weeks back, we went to Georgia's 6th Congressional District, and because that election actually just took place yesterday, uh, if you're looking for some context as to how the results shook out, definitely check that out and see you know, what it was like to be in the campaign full swing. Uh, and also... Uh, on this past Sunday, we released an episode with Doug High, a Republican communication extraordinaire. Uh, the guy really knows what he's talking about when he tells us uh, about communication strategy, how to communicate in a crisis, uh, a lot of really awesome things that you guys will love to hear about. So check that out as well, and keep your eyes peeled because we're always uh, releasing new content, and we'd love to hear from you. So reach out at Fly on the World Pod if you have anything to say or uh, you want to contribute your comments, uh, and we look forward to hearing from you. <laughs>